Every human being believes in salvation in one way or another. And what I mean by that is everyone is trying to justify their existence, prove their worth, prove that they are sufficient before some court of opinion. And this belief affects how we live basically every moment of every day and how we think and how we act. And when it comes down to it, there are essentially only two ways to go about this. There are essentially only two views of salvation. Whether, whether you're religious or not, whether you believe in God or not, whether you believe in an afterlife or not, there are only two ways we think about salvation. We either trust God or we trust ourselves. In a million different ways every day, we either trust God or we trust ourselves. And if we trust ourselves, it looks something like this. We constantly feel the need to prove our worth and sufficiency, whether to ourselves, whether to others, or whether to God, if we believe in God. In any regards, there's some ultimate audience and judge that we are trying to satisfy and please and, and perhaps even get off our back so that we can get on with life. And then we use everything in our lives to, to go about this. We use our family, our friends, our talents and abilities, our social media posts, our political views, our religious views, our religious and biblical knowledge, our, our careers and our leadership positions. We use these things to show that we are sufficient, that we are enough, that we are decent, respectable, kind, concerned about the right causes, passionate about the right priorities, devoted to the right things. And then when we find out that we are not enough and we, we prove ourselves to be insufficient in some of these ways, we, we heap all of this weight on ourselves to prove ourselves sufficiently contrite, to, to make up for our failures. We just double down on our efforts. And it's really in these moments that our concept of salvation becomes abundantly clear. If we immediately begin trying to atone for our sins, trying to just double down our efforts, make up for our sins, get back on the positive side of the balance sheet, it reveals that we ultimately trust ourselves. And this is, in essence, a form of salvation. And it's all on us. All of the weight is on us. All of the responsibility is on us. We must trust ourselves. What other way is there? Well, trusting God, in contrast, looks a little bit like this. We know that God is a gracious and merciful, welcoming, forgiving God who offers his favor and presence and, and blessings as a gift to all who turn to him in faith. Gaining a good standing with him, finding sufficiency with him is not something that we can earn or, or keep up or purchase. He, God cannot be bought. He cannot be bought or forced or pressed, and he will not. He wants to give his favor and blessings and ultimately even to give himself as a gift. This is what he delights to do. Not only to save us, but to welcome us and to rejoice over us and to to protect us and lead us and sustain us to the end. 
And for those who trust in him, this is great news because we know that we could never do enough to gain or sustain our salvation. We know that in our attempts to trust ourselves, we, we downplay the evil in our own hearts. We, we are like, we have this factory that constantly churns out creative new excuses and justifications. It's not only kids who are good at this, we are good at this as well, continually justifying ourselves and excusing ourselves. And then we, we, we condemn and judge the sin of others more harshly than our own in order to feel better about ourselves. And then when none of that works, we just simply change our definitions of morality and, and what is true and good and right. And we know that if God is good, then he is thoroughly good through and through. His, his commitment to good is, and to goodness and, and justice and truth is much higher than ours, is much more perfect than ours, and we know that our excuses and justifications never, never really work with him. And there is ultimately no hope, no salvation in trusting in ourselves. And so we trust in God, who is both righteous and gracious, who both never excuses sin, but del delights in welcoming sinners to himself. And then in those times when we realize that the sin in our heart runs much deeper, when we come face to face with our weakness and, and our, our fears, we don't, we don't change course and start trusting in ourselves and trying to get back on God's favor again. No, we just keep doing what we've been doing, and we trust the God who delights to show grace to us. We, we run to him humbly and yet joyfully. The grace that was sufficient in the beginning is the grace that is sufficient all the way through to the end. And to be very clear, it is not that religious people um, trust in God and, and, and non-religious secular people trust in themselves. There are, there are equally as many um, opportunities to trust in yourself using religion and morality. Um, some of Jesus' harshest words and some of God's harshest words throughout Scripture are towards those people who thought of themselves as pretty decent religious people, um, but their hearts were in fact far from God. Their hearts did not trust in God to be merciful. So the Bible's consistent message is that the option, the second option, trusting in God, is the only option. This is God's design from the very beginning of how he has ordained this life to work, how he's ordained to save a people for himself. And this is not merely a message about how you get into salvation, just a, a kind of one-time, get out of the way, secure your place in heaven, and then you can get on with your life. No, if, if all of this is true, that that. God wants us to trust in him. This is something that affects our whole lives. It changes us. It's not just about securing benefits and getting something from God. It's about coming to a living being, having our disposition changed from trusting in ourselves to trusting God. It is about getting Jesus. And so we're going to consider this today. Um, like I said, just using one verse, one of the most important verses in the Bible, a very succinct statement of God's method and means of salvation. And we'll just walk through it and unpack it and, and, and consider it. So Romans 1.16 is where we're going to be. Verse you've likely heard before. So let me read it. 
slowly, and then uh, we'll walk through it. It says, Paul writing, says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Um, don't let the familiarity of these words uh, just numb you to the wonder that is proclaimed in this. So I hope as we walk through this, you will be able to, to see that and, and, and reflect on that. So Paul begins, for I am not ashamed. So he begins with his disposition towards the gospel. He's not ashamed. He's not embarrassed. He has no um, regret about the gospel or of his participation in it. But to understand this, we kind of have to understand the gospel. So we'll come back to this aspect about not being ashamed. It says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, Paul is assuming some level of understanding of this term of the gospel. And if we were actually reading Romans as a letter, like it is, we would have already come across this word a couple times and actually come across an explanation of it. So if you turn back to the beginning of Romans, we find Paul explaining what the gospel is. So look back at the beginning verses of Romans. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So this is the gospel, the good news, is that what that term means, of God. So something that God has uh, originated, uh, initiated, God has done. And it's also something that God has promised beforehand in the scriptures. So it is the culmination, whatever this gospel is, it is the culmination of what God has been doing from the beginning of time. Um, it, it helps explain all of the words and workings of God's from the beginning of time, all of the institutions and, and, and roles and rituals, all of the tensions and mysteries, all of the prophecies, even of all of the apparent failures leading up to this point. All of it was preparing for this moment for the gospel of God's grace in Jesus. And it does concern Jesus, as Paul goes on in verse 3, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. So the gospel is good news about Jesus and what God has done through him. Uh, we often use the term his person and work, so who he is and what he's done. And what Paul is doing here is stacking up the evidence, stacking up the terms to show the uniqueness of Jesus. So he says, descended from David according to the flesh. Um, this is one of those beforehand prophecies. God had promised this kingly anointed figure to come from the line of David uh, to save his people. And this is the line of Jesus' earthly father, Joseph. So this is one of many strands of prophecies that come together to, to be fulfilled in Jesus, as we saw as we went through the Gospel of Mark last year. And, and Mark, Paul says that this is according to the flesh. So notice the contrast that he makes here between flesh and spirit. So there is the fleshly aspect of Jesus. Jesus is fully man. God came into the world, put on flesh, experienced the full range of human emotions and, and temptations and suffering and even death. But, of course, this does not 
fully explain who Jesus is. So Paul goes on to say that according to the Spirit, he was declared to be the Son of God in power by the resurrection from the dead. So what does the resurrection do? Today we are, are considering the resurrection specifically. One thing the resurrection does is loudly declare and proclaim and confirm who Jesus is. It's like this megaphone saying, this is not just some other guy. This is not just a great teacher. This is not just somebody who has some good advice for living life. No, this, this guy said he was going to rise from the dead, and then he did. And if you read the first few chapters of the book of Acts, as the early Christians went out after Jesus um, had ascended to heaven in the weeks and months after that, they, they specifically focused on the resurrection because that got people's attention. Like, you know this guy Jesus, you've probably heard of him. Yeah, you know how he said he was going to die and then, and then rise again. Well, he did that. And, and, and Paul says there's 500 people out there you can go talk to who, who have seen him since he's come back to life. And so listen to him. His resurrection demands that we listen to him. The resurrection also declares the sufficiency of his death. Um, the resurrection reveals that his death wasn't meaningless. It, it had a purpose to it. It was designed. And what was that purpose? Peter writes, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. He, he bore our sins. Um, Isaiah, writing 800 years before Jesus, says of him, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. So one of the things that Jesus' death does is force us to consider where we place our trust, either in ourselves or in God. Did Jesus really have to bear our sins in his body on the tree? Was that really necessary? Was there not some other way? Was there not some other way that we could kind of help, help out in our salvation, contribute or partner with God in our salvation? Isn't there something in us that we can trust in to, to offer to God and then have that kind of security? Did it have to come to, to this? Well, Paul famously goes on in, in Romans to, to say that no, there is none righteous, none worthy, both among those who are very religious and who know the law and are trying to keep the law and among those who don't have the law. There is none righteous, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death. It's abundantly clear that there's no hope in trusting in ourselves. We have no ability in ourselves to make up for, to rid ourselves of the sin and guilt we have before the only judge that matters, before the only court of opinion that matters in the end. But of course, those, those verses I just read are incomplete. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the gospel. This is what Paul is talking about, what he's not ashamed of, that God has done in Jesus 
all that was necessary for our salvation. He has drawn us to himself, covered our sins, drawn us into relationship, into continual fellowship with him, extended his joy to us, and through all of this led us to, to delight in him and worship him and enjoy him forever. So back to our verse. I am not ashamed of the gospel. And then Paul gives a, an explanation. He explains one of the reasons he is not ashamed of it. He says, for it is the power of God for salvation. And the fact that the gospel, Paul says, is the power of God for salvation helps us understand what the gospel is and how it works. So just, you've heard this before probably, but think about this. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. Through the gospel, God is working a mighty miracle. Just like when God raised Jesus from the dead, that kind of power is working in and through the gospel. It's not just a story. It's not just history. It's not just this inspiring sacrifice, and we should do similarly. It's not just um, some good advice on how to live life. No, it is the power of God. God works his power through this message being proclaimed. And I, part of the reason this is difficult for us is because this is not necessarily how we usually think of power working in a message that just goes out. But I think we can think of some examples that in, to a degree, help us understand this. So one is, uh, you may have heard that after World War II, uh, after there were some Japanese soldiers scattered throughout uh, Southeast Asia and the Pacific Islands, um, and after Japan had surrendered and the word, war was over, the message took a while to get to some of them, and then even when it did reach a lot of these soldiers, they didn't believe it. And the, even 30 years later, a, the last confirmed of these soldiers was found, and finally the word got across. Like, the war is over. You don't have to be hiding anymore. They're, they're, they're hiding and they're fighting still. Um, there are even reports that in the 80s and 90s, they still found some of these soldiers still hiding away. Either they hadn't heard or they're just unwilling to believe that the war was ended. And so they're, they're, they're in hiding. They're, they're fighting. They're, they're fighting a war that's not even going anymore when all they had to do was hear this news and just take it as true. Likewise, the, the gospel comes as this life-shattering, reality-shifting news. Um, God is telling us of what is most true, most significant, most precious and, and valuable. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's finished. God has done everything necessary. Believe, and you will be saved. But even this analogy falls short because the gospel is, is, has a power in and of itself, unlike any other message. The gospel message, as it goes out, awakens and changes hearts. Paul will go on to say this in Romans 10, that faith comes from hearing, that, that hearing the gospel message brings about faith. Uh, one commentator says this, in the proclamation of the gospel, God is actively at work in reaching out to the hearts of people. The gospel is God telling of his love to wayward people. It is not a lifeless message, but a vibrant encounter for everyone who responds in faith. 
Much religious discourse is little more than words and ideas about religious subjects, just conjecturing, just let's just talk about this. Not so the gospel. The gospel is God at work. He lives and breathes through the declaration of his redemptive love for people. So this is why it's so important for us to, to explain and, and pro proclaim and tell and, and unpack the gospel for people. It is the power of God for salvation. It must be heard. But in this, if we are to take the benefits of the gospel, we do have responsibility. Even though the power is of God, we do have responsibility. Christ and all that is in him is not ours automatically. Like the Japanese soldiers, we must believe. And this is what Paul goes on to say in the end of this verse. The power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So one of the things that Paul is doing at the beginning of Romans here is to show, to show that both Jews and non-Jews alike, those who have the law, God's law, um, who have this rich history of God's law, and those who don't, the Greeks or non-Jews, are both alike under sin and are both alike have this offer of salvation through the gift of Jesus. And so the point here is that everyone who believes and this includes both Jews and non-Jews, everyone. Not some who believe, not only those who really feel it, not those who believe and get their act together, not those who believe and are really good, more religious people, not those who believe and never really struggle with sin anymore, or those who believe but continue to doubt and question and struggle and not those who believe and immediately understand every aspect and implication of the gospel and have their doctrine all figured out. No, everyone who believes. This is a, and this kind of belief is not just a head knowledge. It's not just giving assent to some facts about God and, and Jesus and even his death. Just saying, yeah, I believe that's true. No, it's, it's actually a coming to God through the gospel. It is a calling on Jesus, grasping of Jesus. Even if our grasp is weak and feeble, the, the power is not in us and our great faith and, and our abilities to, to hold on. It is in God. We trust in His power. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. It is the power of God for our salvation to everyone who believes. Now, now we can return to the beginning of what Paul says. I am not ashamed of the gospel. So at the very least, Paul is saying that he has no embarrassment, no regret, no shame about the gospel and his identifying with it. Um, but surely we can take this negative statement and go, go, go a bit further than this. Uh, we know from elsewhere in Scripture that Paul readily boasts in the gospel, right? He glories in it, rejoices in it, finds satisfaction in it. And you may not realize it at first or think about it at first, but this disposition towards the gospel is much more significant than we realize. Um, 
Just as our only option is to trust ourselves or trust God, there is really only two options towards the gospel. We can boast in it and rejoice in it and find our identity in it and continue to come back to it again and again when we, we have no recourse anywhere else. Or we can kind of set it on the shelf and find it unnecessary, weak, foolish, perhaps even offensive. These are really the only two postures we can take towards the gospel, towards the cross. The cross is this dividing line of humanity. Humanity is ultimately divided by one's disposition towards the cross. Uh, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 1, clearly. He says, for the word of the cross, that's a short way to say the gospel, is folly, that word literally means moronic, to those who are perishing. It's, it's foolish, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. And those are not like, like foolish and the power of God are on complete opposite ends of the spectrum. Like either it is exactly what you need and is, is full of glory and, and you give yourself to it or how foolish of a message is that. And Paul will go on to say that this is actually by God's design. There is this inherent, apparent, perceived, built-in weakness and foolishness in the gospel. And this has been attested throughout history. Uh, throughout history, the way of trusting in self and its various manifestations is often been more acceptable, more respectable, more desirable. It's, it's certainly not hard to see this today. You look at the books that sell, the, the, the teachers that get uh, audiences, the, the posts on social media, Trust yourself is often the gospel of this world. And, and this even has much ground within Christian churches and Christian circles. It, it comes doctored up in many seemingly Christian forms. But it is antithetical to the true gospel. This is why Paul is saying that the cross, the gospel, is, ult is this ultimate dividing line of humanity because it reveals where your trust is. Is your trust in the cross and in, in God's grace and Jesus and in sufficiency of that, or is your trust in yourself? Is, is the cross just one aspect? Is that just kind of where you begin and then you turn to trusting in yourself? Is that kind of a nice thing that you believe in, but ultimately you trust in yourself? And when we're talking about boasting in the cross and boasting in the gospel, we should really be clear that we're not just talking about a thing here, the gospel. We're not just talking about our relationship towards this kind of lifeless thing. We are talking about our relationship towards a living being. This is ultimately about boasting in the Lord. It is not the case that we could boast in the gospel, then, but then kind of be ashamed of Jesus. You know, boast in what we get from the gospel, eternal life, freedom from shame, whatever, but then kind of, no, but, but Jesus, I'm kind of ashamed of you. No, to boast in glory in the gospel is to boast in glory in God. And 
and this relational aspect is made clear when we consider God's disposition towards those he saves. So Paul can say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, and in this he is saying, I'm not ashamed of Christ and all he's done for me. Well, elsewhere in Scripture, we are told that God is not ashamed of us. God is not ashamed of his people. God is not ashamed to be called our God. Christ is not ashamed to be called our brother. And perhaps we think that, well, yes, we should not be ashamed of a God who graciously saves vile sinners, but doesn't it kind of make sense that God would carry a little bit of shame towards us? God might be a little bit embarrassed by us. Try not to announce too loudly that we are his. But that's not what we are given in Scripture. No, we are, God has no shame in saving us by grace and grace alone. No shame in being associated with us. He doesn't accept us with regrets or half-heartedly. Now, Scripture, again, we, we can go much further than just stating this negatively. God has no shame in us. When Scripture goes to great lengths to show the delight and joy that God has over us. I've been quoting Zephaniah 3.17 a lot in the past year, but it's an amazing verse. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. It's just incredible to consider that God uh, would take this posture and have these sort of affections and delights in his people. Right? It, it shifts, it did for me, it shifts the way we think about God, the way we, I think, tend to naturally in our sin think about God. Uh, Psalm 23, listen to these words and consider God's heart towards his people in them. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. This is who God is towards his own. And this is for us to, to hold on to. This is for us to believe in. And knowing that this is the God's disposition towards his people, how could we ever have shame in the gospel? How could we ever be ashamed of Christ and reject Christ when this is the result? Even how could we just come to Christ merely for the benefits he gives us? Eternal life, freedom from shame, and, and, and a new family, and respectability perhaps. How could we merely come to him just to get these benefits but then ignore the presence and, and, and the love and the heart of God? not actually get him. I think this is what is required to take Paul's disposition, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, is to look forward and to, to see and believe not just that God saves us one time in Jesus, but that God's plan is for this relationship where he is singing over us and delighting in us walking with us, leading us beside still waters, to know that this is the life that God is leading us into.
And this should encourage us, if we are in Christ, to hold on to him shamelessly, and persistently, and patiently, and, and joyfully in all things. Not just not being ashamed, but giving ourselves to, boasting in, rejoicing in, clinging to in, in the times through suffering and sin and shame and, and guilt and weakness and fears, continually coming back to Christ in the gospel as our sufficiency, as our worth, as our identity. Let's pray. Oh Lord, I, it feels like we can we are just barely inching in to the wonder of your love, of who you are, of your glory and greatness. As David writes in Psalm 103, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is your love for those who fear you. It, it feels like we are not even getting to the atmosphere not even getting hardly above our heads in grasping your love. I pray that you, through your Spirit, would impress this on our hearts, open our minds to believe, to believe your word, and to bank ourselves on your promised mercy, and to continue to do that. Convict us of the ways that we trust ourselves. If we are still just living in ultimate trust in ourselves, even though we may look very religious or spiritual or Christian on the outside, show us the ways that our trust is ultimately still in ourself and what we are offering to you and not in what you have given to us. Lord, let us know the, the freedom and joy that comes from trusting in you and let us know the change that comes not through our own efforts, but through your spirit working in us and your giving us everything we need for life and godliness, your giving us the desires and the strength to live for you. We pray this in your name. Amen.